This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast discussing topics on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I'm here today uh, with Kareem Fawaz, a repeat offender uh, and return visitor uh, to talk with us about oil markets today. Kareem, how are you? Hey, Hill. Good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah, well, well, thanks. You, you, I guess we've been kind of doing this on, on about a quarterly cadence now, uh, t- time with your uh, oil markets reports. Um, and this one is particularly interesting. We, we've been in a, uh, in a sense, a, a tighter band, I think, the shale band, as you referred to it, in a 60 to $65 world for several, several weeks or months. And your most recent update um, released to clients, what, about two weeks ago, um, is showing a new band in a higher price point for several uh, several quarters in, in, in the future. Um, can you talk with us a little bit about why the step change and what's uh, what's driving the change in our views? Sure. As you said, we've been kind of talking on a broadly quarterly basis. And as we do these, so we go through this whole process of uh, reviewing our supply demand outlooks, looking at prices, looking at the price environment. What we tend to find is usually these quarterly updates are either kind of maintenance updates where we're calibrating the outlook within a kind of a consistent framework where the price environment is still the way we, we expected it to be. And at certain points, we do have these shifts in the market that have a fairly significant impact that change the price formation process and the price regime. And I think we're now, what we're saying this quarter is that we are transitioning into a new price environment, a price regime because some of the assumptions that were driving the price environment through the last cycle, which was dominated by the reactivity of shale, and in a way we kind of described it as not necessarily just resource abundance, but resource complacency. There's a lot of resource available and readily available beyond certain prices to meet uh, market needs and then overshoot more often than not, which is where we've been through 2015 to 2019 pre-COVID. And now we're transitioning into this environment where that elasticity is changing, that market disposition is tightening. And a few a few kind of big drivers of that have happened over the past few months that are worth kind of flagging here. Uh, we've had a fairly steep drawdown in global inventories over the summer, largely kind of accelerated by the strength in demand post-COVID, but also by disruptions. So we had the hurricane uh, impact production in the Gulf Coast, uh, in the U.S. We had a lot of supply disappointments around the world that kind of coalesced at the time as demand was rising to help accelerate that drawdown of, of oil stocks, both on the product side and the crude side. So you saw kind of that overhang of, of oil that we built up over 2020 progressively get worked down. And more recently, you've had this contagion from gas to oil, which kind of shattered the notion that oil was largely insulated to what's happening on the natural gas side which really shifted a bit that demand picture through the winter to the upside because suddenly that switching from gas to oil became a lot more likely, especially at mm-hmm. high gas prices. 
And that kind of demand upside narrative coalesced to that, to that supply picture and helped really shift the perception of the market tightness, not just through the winter, but into, the, into 2022 uh, more significantly. And finally, the big assumption beneath all of that is the, the reactivity and the elasticity of supply. And that's on two sides. On the U.S. side, and I can talk a bit about the U.S. as we go forward, is the fact that the U.S. isn't reacting to higher prices with higher volumes to the same extent as they were historically. And that's very important because that was the, the kind of the short cycle barrel of first resort over the past few years that's not reacting. And then on the OPEC side, what we've seen over the past six months is OPEC's increase in production, which has continued the pace, has kind of disappointed overall because a lot of countries within the OPEC plus construct haven't been able to add volumes to the same extent as the larger producers within the organization. And the net effect of that has been progressive erosion of spare capacity without necessarily seeing the market loosen in any visible way. And that kind of shift on the supply of the supply function through the winter, together with the upside to demand, has really shifted the market kind of psychology both for the short term and for the medium term, because it's painting a picture of potentially much more structural tightness into next year uh, and, and likely beyond that. And we, so, so we're talking about medium term being being next year and beyond. I mean, there, there's a lot of discussion of just the snapback, the, the, the post-COVID snapback. And I was in an airport this past weekend and it was absolutely bananas just how many people were traveling and you know roads are congested and there, there's a lot of activity. How is that influencing the demand picture? Are we approaching kind of a level of normalcy or is does this snapback get easier uh, as we kind of get further along into it? Yeah, I think we're seeing that. So basically we came into this spring. So th th that's one of the key differences with this rally, this most recent rally over the past month and a half or two and where we were earlier this year. The, the, the rally we had in the early spring was largely speculative in the sense that it was kind of forward looking to a potential increase in demand that was expected to be quite strong. What we're seeing now is you have a lot more physical evidence that that, that rally, that rebound in demand has materialized. So we expected the second and third quarters to be big demand boomed, uh, quarters from a sequential standpoint. And we've seen that play out. I think we're getting quite close on a, in a number of products back to pre-COVID levels on the gasoline side, on the gas oil side, in, in NGLs and petrochemicals. Obviously, jet demand, although we have seen a pickup in jet demand in the, in the US and Europe, as those countries have reopened, as vac vaccination rates have reached kind of critical thresholds, jet demand is still relatively depressed worldwide, especially in Asia Pacific, because of kind of the regional issues around COVID outbreaks that have still been a drag on jet demand. But overall, demand is getting close. So we expect demand this quarter to be in the high 90s, 99 to 100 million barrels a day, which is, although not exactly as high as it was in the fourth quarter of 2019, back in the same zip code. So we are in that process of normalization at a very fast clip here on the demand side. And we expect a third leg of the recovery to happen next year as you get kind of that jet demand back as a lot of the seasonality effects kind of that you're going to see through the winter uh, reverse over the spring and summer of next year, you're going to see that upside. So we expect demand by the second half of 2022 to be back comfortably above the second half of 2019 levels. So we are we're recovering fast and we do still expect some momentum into next year on the demand side. 
So I want to come back to the, the demand side of this in, in, a, in a few minutes. But before we do, there, there's you know there, there's been a lot of discussion around uh, underinvestment uh, in supply, and and that that may or may not be contributing to to the supply side of our equation. Oh, what's your take um, on the underinvestment thesis? Yeah, I think that's an that's an interesting kind of uh, perspective that's really come up over the past few months here. So if you think back to what's happened. Progressively over the past year, you've seen this kind of tightening of the market, this spare capacity erosion. You start to see the, the drawdown in inventories and kind of the default that seems to have trickled into the market is a number of people coming out and saying, well, where we are today was largely inevitable because we've underinvested in oil supply for a number of years because of high pri- uh, low prices. And therefore, this was kind of always the way this was going to end. I think I would push back a bit on that narrative because I think it kind of underestimates really the severity of the COVID shock in a way to the supply, uh, to the supply system and to supply to productive capacity around the world. And I think in a way it's a bit of revisionist history to say that the issue is chronic when really you did, you did have a significant shock to the system that eroded. Effectively, we lost 2 million barrels a day of production in the U.S. So we were producing roughly 13 million barrels a day when, when COVID hit last spring. We're now producing roughly 11 million barrels a day, slightly above that. So you've wiped out 2 million barrels a day of U.S. supply. You're missing another probably 500,000 barrels a day around the world. On top of effectively 2 million barrels a day off the market in Iran, a million and a half barrels a day of the market in Venezuela because of sanctions over the past few years. So over the past three to four years, you've lost effectively six million barrels a day of productive capacity, which is, you know, five to seven years worth of normal demand growth. And that got wiped out kind of swiftly between disruptions and uh, and sanctions over the past couple of years. So the way I would think about it is the fact that we haven't had a severe crisis to the same extent as you're seeing in natural gas, for example, uh, in, in the oil market is a testament to just how significant that that lie buffer was in the system to begin with to absorb these shocks. I do think there is a resilience argument that can be made. We've invested and arguably over-invested in U.S. supply, short cycle supply, as opposed to long cycle projects around the world. And now that the U.S. has rebased at a lower level and that the growth trajectory in the U.S. has shifted lower, Suddenly, you're looking at an environment into the medium term where you need those long cycle barrels and you haven't that you haven't sanctioned and you haven't moved forward with. I think that has more uh, you can make that argument more strongly. But from there is to say that we've chronically underinvested is, I think, mischaracterizing a bit what's been happening over the past few years. And you could argue, as I was mentioning, that uh, to a large extent, we've adequately and, and more so overinvested through equity and debt markets in the U.S. Uh, over the past few years, over the over that shale kind of banned period I was talking about, which from a resource and economic standpoint, the market invested and over-invested in probably what has been the most capital efficient source of barrels that the market's ever seen from a dollars spent to barrels produced. And the, the problem has been that once that engine uh, of growth faded to some extent, you're suddenly looking at a much different supply picture. So, so there's not necessarily an, an underinvestment. I don't. The word misdirected might be too strong, but but the, with the focus on U.S. shale and now that shale has you know, willingly stopped investing, um, or at least paused investing, it, it's it's more of a uh, redirection of investment um, that we need to, to see. 
To some extent. So basically, it's the fact that the U.S. has rebased at the lower level. So basically, your run rate. So not so the U.S. was U.S. growth profile was slowing even before COVID hit. We were already talking about discipline, already talking about shareholder demands as we came into the COVID crisis in early 2020 and late 2019. Uh, that I think has been compounded by the fact that you had the shock to the system that shrunk the size of the U.S. by two million barrels a day over the past year and a half, especially uh, over the span of a few months, really last year. So effectively, now that you're rebasing the U.S. lower and growing at a slower rate, suddenly you need other sources of supply to make up for that loss. And that's where you're going to need to be looking elsewhere. And that means OPEC plus initially, because that's where the spare capacity exists. But as you head into the medium term, it's going to increasingly have to be how fast can we restart the global upstream engine? Can we sanction projects? And how does the capital scarcity induced by ESG concerns, mm -hmm. by portfolio decisions and the majors and other producers out there affect the extent to which operators internationally are willing to commit to increase that international capacity significantly uh, into the medium term? And how do those sanction barrels that, that, that are currently sitting outside the market impact, uh, I guess, psychology around that? That, um, yeah, I, I think at the beginning of the year, a lot of people, including us, were, were looking at Iran barrels coming back into the market uh, sooner than later, yeah. and, and they're not in the market to today. Is that going to discourage investment uh, globally, knowing that Iran is still hanging out there? Uh, I don't think as much in terms of impacting investment. It does impact the market to some extent because it's one of the missing kind of uh, one of the hurdles remaining into getting more visibility into what that medium term picture really looks like is that you need to clear that potential return of the sanction barrels into the market and see how the market digests it, how it impacts fair capacity, how it impacts fundamentals. So I think that's still a missing link in terms of that medium term picture that needs to get clearer, or I would say over the next year or two. In terms of where Iran was, as you mentioned, we were kind of the market was expecting as of late spring, as talks were getting uh, quite heated, it seemed to be really near the finish line in April and May. We, they weren't really able to, to get there. The Iranian presidential election happened and really the talks got set back significantly. We're now looking at a timeline that's probably looking more likely to be a second half of 2022 and potentially into 2023 timeline for that for those barrels to to come back into the market if a deal does come to pass. But it is still a hurdle that the market, that the market is going to need to, to deal with before you get more visibility into the medium term. But in the short term, it did help tighten market significantly this year. It helped. So the, the lack of return of Iran, although from a flow standpoint, was, was manageable, uh, both through OPEC's fair capacity, through inventories that were uh, plentiful this year. So from a balance standpoint, supply-demand balance standpoint, the market had enough, uh, enough tools to manage the, that kind of delay in the negotiations. It did carve out room for both inventories to draw down and spare capacity to, to, to kind of start moving lower, which helped get us to where we are today in terms of market psychology. So it did have a quite significant impact this year, even though it was manageable from a, from a supply-demand standpoint. And how should we think about spare capacity analysis? So it's November 10th. We're heading in toward, toward, toward the end of the year. Shale execs are, are you know, rethinking their 2022 capital spending. And if we're, if we're looking at share, spare capacity, both in terms of OPEC and in terms of the U.S. shale sector, you know, I, I know they're very different. But, but if 
how should we think about that? Is is that contributing to the tightness further, or, or is there physical capacity available um, to, to kind of keep a lid on things in terms of price increase? I think that's a good question because basically that's what that's what the market is grappling with currently. It's really this notion of supply elasticity and spare capacity. It's how much spare capacity is there in the system. I think traditionally thought of through the lens of OPEC plus, but also to some extent in the U.S. and how reactive the U.S. is. But from the context of OPEC, I think is where the questions are and where we're getting the most questions from clients over the past few months is, I think that the fact that OPEC has struggled to keep adding at the 400,000 barrels a day a month rate that they have announced that they would be adding barrels at has really raised a lot of questions about how much spare capacity is still there. I would say the short answer, and I'll detail it in a second, the short answer is there's probably less spare capacity than is currently advertised through the cuts. And on the other side, there's probably more spare capacity than where current market kind of uh, anxiety seems to be gravitating over the past few months. So it's somewhere in between, obviously. On paper, OPEC Plus still has a lot of spare capacity. So versus the baselines that the countries uh, that are party to that agreement are versus the April 2020 levels, there probably still is something in the range of six to six and a half million barrels a day of spare capacity. In reality, from an effective spare capacity standpoint, we're probably looking at something that's closer to the four to four and a half million barrels a day currently. So significantly lower by around a million and a half to two million barrels a day of what we would call paper cuts versus real physical capacity uh, on the market. Mm -hmm. We're still above 2018, 2019 levels, which which were closer to 3 million barrels a day, roughly of spare capacity across the group, largely concentrated in the core Gulf producers. But we expect that if you continue on the current trajectory, we should be back at 2018, 2019 levels by next, by next spring, early summer. So we are on a pathway to normalize that capacity here over the next six to nine months. So spare capacity is decreasing. It's decreasing fast. It's less than advertised. But overall, we do still see relatively comfortable levels of spare capacity, largely concentrated in the big Gulf producers, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Kuwait, to some extent Iraq, to some extent Russia, able to add production here in the short term. So we're not yet at at the point where we have a real capacity issue, at least not through the next six to nine months going forward. I think the U.S. story is a different one. I think everyone understands in the U.S. that from a subsurface standpoint, if operators were to deploy capital into the drill bit and increase CapEx significantly, you could add up to a million and a half, two million barrels a day relatively easily based on kind of the shadowing of the decline rates, the, the, the running room we have in the various plays, and kind of how much capacity we have on the service sector, you should be able to accelerate uh, production in the U.S. relatively quickly. But what we've seen so far is producers have been quite reluctant, especially public uh, mm-hmm. public operators, to increase that capex and instead diverting a lot of the windfall that we've seen this year to a large extent, which has been a surprise windfall versus expectations, both on the oil and gas side. A lot of that excess capital, and we're seeing it through the earnings over the past few months is getting diverted to either shareholders or debt, debt pay downs. And that's where a lot of the excess capital is going to rather than CapEx. And that's a significant because it's really a, a company decision rather than a resource decision that's happening. So that elasticity of U.S. supply, at least over the next few months and into 2022, 
appears to be relatively low. And that's giving prices a bit more oomph on the upside because it allows prices to sustainably run higher without the fear that the U.S. is going to come back and slam you on the upside the way they have uh, in 2018 and 2017 and recurrently over the past six, seven years at various points. And we should start seeing those CapEx, 2022 CapEx numbers coming out over the next few weeks, I guess, which should give us a little bit more confidence one way or another in terms of whether people are increasing budgets significantly, insignificantly, or, or not at all. Correct. And we're starting to see some of that come out. A lot of the big publicly traded operators seem to be sticking to their to their guns in terms of, of capping production growth and capex over th- through 2022, continuing this kind of discipline and restraint uh, shift that we've seen through this year. So we're start, still seeing most of the public operators here kind of guide. Those that are guiding at this point are guiding still within that zero to five percent growth environment through 2022. So I think on the public side, that's still sticking. We are seeing a lot more activity happening on the private side, as you mm-hmm. would expect, because you don't have the same level of, of pressures from shareholders because you're seeing that upside from prices. We're starting to see uh, rig counts, private rig counts get back close to pre-COVID levels and then and then some. So we're, we're seeing activity pick up quite significantly. And I think privates are still a big component of our growth trajectory through next year. We do still see... so. Although I am talking about restraint, holding, about public operators guiding in the low in the low range for production, we are still seeing a fairly significant growth pickup in 2022. We are seeing around 600,000 barrels a day of growth on the onshore side. Add to that a couple of hundred thousand barrels a day of additional oil from just the Gulf of Mexico. Some of that is kind of rebound post Hurricane Ida, so it's kind of a base effect. But all told, you are moving back into growth in the U.S. You're just not seeing the type of growth that you would normally see or that we got accustomed to seeing when prices got into the 70s and 80s last time around. So in 2018, when we got above $70 a barrel, the U.S. grew by 2 million barrels a day entry to exit over 2018. Mm -hmm. So we're not looking at that type of environment. Uh, We're still looking at a significantly lower growth environment going forward. And the way we kind of think about the U.S. and kind of the way we've been talking about it is the biggest revision to our outlook versus last quarter is the revision we didn't make, which is despite the fact that we've revised prices up by, you know, $15 a barrel, our U.S. production forecast for 2022 is relatively unchanged with where we expected it to be uh, last July. But I think that in a way is, is a fairly significant shift. And that's in a way the biggest shift to price formation uh, that we that we see uh, at least through 2022. And how should we think about the uh, the, the gas side of this in terms of uh, rig direction? That that now it seems like operators, particularly in the U.S., if you've got a gassy portfolio and an oil portfolio, gas prices are two x or three x what they were uh, this time last year. And globally, that there is you know extremely high prices, um, you know, with, with some of the gas short countries. Do you think that is a, a, a going to discourage oil investment in 2022 um, or oil production in 22 or is it just more more cash flow for something like the Permian that throws off quote-unquote free gas? Yeah, I think it's probably more of the latter. I think to a large extent over the past few years what you've seen is a bit more kind of specialization happen within the operator base. So you don't have a lot of operators or you do have some but not as many as you used to that are really big on both sides of the equation, on the gas side and the oil side. Oil operators tend to be more oil-focused with kind of the gas 
price surge being more of a kind of windfall, I would say, more than anything else. It's kind of an associated product that suddenly became wildly profitable over the past six months. So I think that's a net positive because it frees up a lot more cash, both for uh, maintenance capex and for returns. And that's where we've seen that happen, especially on the public side. It's kind of been banking a lot of that upside. I don't think it really diverts activity away from the oil side. At least that's not the way we're trying to think about it. We do start to see some activity pick up on the gas side next year, particularly in the Haynesville, mm. uh, as you start to see the kind of activity pick back up as these prices incentivize a bit more uh, drilling and growth. So we do see, see gas production starting to pick up over the second half of 2022 and into 2023. But from the, from an oil perspective, I think it's more of a it's more gravy than it is necessarily shifting for the trajectory of supply. So I guess the other thing, and I wanted to come back to, to some of the demand comments you made at the very top of the call. But but you know one of the big themes that we've been talking about for, for the past you know eleven months has been inflation, which you know I think continues by many to be talked about as if it were transitory. Um, but the headline today, I think, said the most recent inflation reading was the highest in 30 years or something like that. You know, gas has made a big move. Oil has made a big move. Um, I was listening to another podcast recently uh, about Bitcoin and the whole idea was congratulations. If you're investing now, you're coming in on the goods. So, so how should we think about, you know, right now we're looking at 80, $85 a barrel. Some of the big banks are talking, you know, $125 a barrel. Are, are we at the, the quote-unquote caboose in, in this, or is there upside from a price perspective? And then really, where does the consumer start to get uh, to change their behavior? That, that you know, I noted there, the line at the airport this past weekend, you know, it's, you know, Yogi yeah. Bear was talking about how nobody goes there anymore, it's too crowded. Um, so, so, so when do we get to a point that prices are too high, that people stop flying and stop driving? And Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, basically, it's it's really a debate about when when does elasticity kind of price elasticity kick in versus the post-COVID kind of recovery engines that have been driving demand for the past year and a half, which is a tough question because it's really trying to split the demand the demand picture between what's structural, what's cyclical, and mm-hmm. the the impact of the of the higher prices. So I think we've been looking at this from a price standpoint. And, Obviously, a lot of countries are seeing this inflation be really translate through pain at the pump in a number of places. Countries that are seeing on top of the higher oil prices, they're starting to see kind of pressure on the currency side. And suddenly places like Mexico, Brazil, uh, Russia, India, China, to a large extent, are seeing prices higher than they, they were when oil was kind of gasoline prices, retail gasoline prices higher than they were when oil was $100, $120 a barrel in 2010, 11, 12, 13. So you're starting to see that price inflation get to the levels which are traditionally worrisome. In our view, I think the, the challenge we see here in terms of that slowing down demand is that a lot of the momentum we're seeing behind demand isn't necessarily purely discretionary driving as much as normalization of economic activity, uh, normalization of mobility patterns, recovery in jet demand as tra- air travel recovers. So we're talking about big fundamental elements of the demand equation that are recovering. And those engines are a lot more, a lot stickier on the upside than the impact of of potential price elasticity. We do start to expect some erosion of demand as you get the next summer because of high prices, because you're getting to a more quote unquote normal demand environment post COVID where you don't have 
the pent up structural elements supporting uh, the demand story. As you get there, you start to see some of that erosion happen. But in the short term, it's a risk, I would say, but it's a relatively small risk versus, as opposed to the scale of kind of the structural elements that are driving the demand story for next year. I think the bigger risk probably is that you do have a broader economic slowdown, macro slowdown as a result of what's happening uh, between the high energy prices, high inflation. If you do start to see the global economic picture sour, I think that has a bigger risk than necessarily pure consumer elasticity to high fuel prices. I think in the short term, we're still looking at three to four million barrels a day of sequential demand upside by next summer. Could it be three to 500,000 barrels a day lower if you're in a high price environment? Potentially, you lose some of that extra, you know, road trip demand next summer, air travel on the discretionary side, maybe to some extent. But is it enough to change the demand profile significantly and change the demand story? Uh, probably not unless you start to see some real economic contraction or slowdown uh, become a part of the story. So if people are looking at the prices today, I mean, would, would, should they be looking at it and say, all right, well, this is the, the, this is the caboose in terms of an investment thesis? Or, um, you know, is there room, you know, how, how do we get to that $125 that, that some of the banks are talking about? Uh, yeah, so we don't subscribe to the view of $120, $130 a barrel in the short term, because as I was talking about earlier, we believe that we still do have sufficient supply buffers in the system, mm-hmm. whether it's inventories, whether it's spare capacity. You still have a system in the U.S., which although it's less reactive than it was before, at higher prices, it will progressively react uh, more significantly. Uh, on the private side, you start to hear some of the majors talk about more growth. Even on the public side, you, as you kind of generate a lot more cash, you see some of that leakage materialize. Maybe not in 2022, but probably more in 2023. But nevertheless, from a, from a supply standpoint, you do still have buffers in the system that mean that you're not yet at a resource scarcity kind of environment the same way you were in the mid-late 2000s or even in the 2012-13 period where spare capacity was low and we didn't really know where the next barrel was going to come from. We know where the, where the next barrel is. And it's available to be deployed at, at these prices as you get higher. So we don't think you're yet at a point where the system needs to get to demand destruction levels uh, to balance itself. And as you get through the winter and this kind of gas scare subsides over the spring, we'll, we, we do expect some of that anxiety that you're seeing from a cross energy standpoint, uh, fate to some extent that will help on that front. So I think from a balancing standpoint, it is still a manageable market from a supply standpoint. We do believe OPEC is able to manage it through their spare capacity, through the inventory system. So you're not yet at that nexus, which is those 120, 130, 140 forecasts are effectively saying you're at the end of the rope from a spare capacity standpoint, from a supply capacity standpoint, and demand is the last line of defense. And you need to get to a price where demand is the correcting mechanism. We don't believe that you're there yet or that you will be there over the next six to nine months. I think you still need a lot of spare capacity to unwind further. You need inventories to fall further before you're at that crossroads. So maybe just to, to, to wrap up, I mean, if we're thinking medium term, longer term, I mean, is that some of the other big news on the the uh, you know the, the headlines today is on uh, I think it's pronounced Rivian, the uh, 
electric vehicle startup IPO today. Tesla's valuation has obviously gone crazy throughout the year. A year ago, oil markets were totally out of favor. Now, um, you know, much of our research has described it as the, the good place uh, from the perspective of producers or uh, an investor long oil. What type of legs have we um, got on? Is, is this uh, the, the, the quote unquote last oil boom that people are looking for um, as EEVs and, and clean technologies take more market share? Is this the beginning of, of a period of prolonged volatility, um, of, of prolonged stability at the $85 point? Uh, this is, I mean, this is a conversation we kind of circle always back around mm-hmm. to whenever, whenever I've been on. Uh, I mean, this is the debate that's happening. It's really about this. And I think it's happening a lot more in real time today in the market than it was last year, where last year you had this kind of broad consensus about kind of long-term demand deceleration and lower for longer was kind of becoming the the way people were thinking about that medium-term outlook. What we've seen this year is a bit this notion of, which we've been talking about for a while, is this velo- velocity mismatch between the energy transition on the demand side and how fast these shifts can have an impact on the supply side and that kind of mismatch in velocities creating this volatility, creating this opportunity in the short term for tightening, for over tightening, because if, as you're focusing on that medium to long term deceleration in demand, you're shifting capital away from oil supply today. And that's impacting you know, your balances for the next two to three, five years where we do still, still see demand growing. We do still see the market needing more and more oil. And that supply needs to materialize from someplace. And that's the kind of challenge that markets are trying to price in a way now is how severe is that short term tightening if it does materialize? And do we have the resource to meet our medium term market needs, knowing that in the long term demand will be decelerating because of these factors, because of EV penetration, because of efficiency gains, because of these structural drivers of global oil demand that I think will be chipping away demand into the long term and decelerating the rate of growth uh, as you get into the back half of the next decade or this decade and into the 2030s. I think it's a a difficult question to answer. I think the market today is starting to grapple with some of that anxiety because the concern is that the supply might not materialize to the same extent as as market needs. And what it creates is a lot more volatility a mm-hmm. lot more uh, choppiness as these kind of asynchronous transitions happen on the on the demand and supply side and give way to a lot of these dislocations. And what it comes down to at the end of the day is going to be, you know, how do we navigate the next few years? How much kind of how much oil does the U.S. system generate? How much how much capacity growth do the resource holders in OPEC uh, between Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Iraq, Kuwait? These countries that are being quite vocal about increasing capacity, how much are they able to add volumes in, in the medium term? And then, you know, how much sanctioning of new projects happens? We've seen sanctioning pick up this year, contrary to some of the kind of narrative out there. We are seeing projects move forward. We're seeing big push by producers, by operators like Petrobras uh, in terms of sanctioning new projects that are kind of going to carry growth into the medium term. But to what extent can international sanctioning offset the slowdown in the U.S. and offset some of the issues and potentially higher demand than expected in the short term uh, to meet that need? I think it's still an open question. Uh, I think volatility is probably the, the most likely outcome. 
whether and and I think increasingly it's becoming clear that this it's volatility in what what will likely be a higher price band than we've been in through the past five to seven years because you don't have that short cycle barrel engine in the U.S. that's willing to step in and over and overproduce every time you get that price signal. So I think you are sustainably in a higher environment. It will be a lot choppier, and we're seeing that across energy, not just oil. We're seeing it in gas. We're seeing it in coal. And I think that's the big takeaway of what you've seen over the past few months is if this is how the the transition is going to play out, it's going to be a, a fairly wild ride for the next few years. <laughs> that's a good place to leave it. Change is messy. Change is messy. But for the industry and for whoever's on the long side and looking at this, it is a, it is a better environment uh, for a lot of the, the legacy uh, oil kind of investing environment than it was through much of the past five, seven years, where it was really difficult from a from a return and cash flow standpoint, as uh, as we were uh, as we were kind of muddling through that cycle of abundance and, and oversupply. All right. Well, as always, thanks, Kareem. And uh, I hope we can do it again here uh, in three months, if not before. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's always changing. I mean, every time we started, we were doing this at 50. We're now doing this at we're trading in the low 80s. You know, maybe next time, although we won't we wouldn't be strongly of that view. But, you know, maybe maybe we'll see triple digits before we speak again next time. <laughs> Maybe so. We did it at what negative twenty four about nine months ago, so or eighteen <laughs> months ago. Exactly. So. All right. Thanks, uh, and we'll see what happens next time. Sure. Take care. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com/energyblog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.